Well, as we continue this morning with our study of the life of Jesus, and as we return once again to that part of Luke's gospel in which he stops and devotes 41% of his book to teaching us and explaining to us and illustrating for us what it means or what it looks like to follow Jesus, we come to the topic of prayer and even to the prayer that Ryan just so beautifully sang for us. And here's what we learned today. You ready? Following Jesus means, here we go, becoming people of prayer. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I want to say it out loud for you because I think it's going to be helpful to all of us. I think we can all relate to this. When I say following Jesus means becoming a person of prayer, some of you at least are thinking, of course it does. How could it not? I mean, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to talk to him. I need to be in communication with him, and I need to be able, in fact, not just to touch base every now and then, but to be in regular communication with him and regular effective communication with him. So, Tom, I get that. As soon as you say it, I understand it, I get it, I already knew it, I didn't even need for you to tell me about it, and you know what, I'll go one further. I even want to be that person, but here's my problem. I don't know how. I just, I don't. Like, when it comes to talking to God, I don't even know what to say. I get about 30 seconds in, and I'm sort of like, yeah, that's it. It's all the material I got. Amen. So what do I say? God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for food. I mean, that doesn't even rhyme. It's terrible poetry. Seriously, almost gives me a rash. I'm not going to lie. I just, it's painful even to say. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Okay, now hear the rest with the ear of a three-year-old. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Wait, what? This is why your kids sleep with you. My wife was always so inviting. Oh, sure, honey, you can sleep with us. I'm like, come on, you're killing me. We can't do this. So what do I say? That's problem number one. Problem number two, truth be known, total transparency, Tom, here's the deal. I'm just not really all that motivated to do anything in this whole arena called prayer. Like I just, I don't know. I got a problem with my want to. So here's what Luke does. He comes to us with the principle, following Jesus means becoming a person of prayer. And then he says, okay, look, here's the deal. I know you don't don't know what to say, so I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to give you a model prayer. I am going to organize in a very particular order that needs to be respected your conversations with the Lord. I'm going to give you topic followed by topic, followed by topic, followed by topic, like a series of topical hooks that you can then come to, pull out, have in front of you, and hang your real thoughts and words and emotions and cares and concerns and requests and all of that stuff on as the Spirit leads you in that conversation. So I'm going to cure that. And... Then Luke says, well, I'm going to give you some motivation too. I'm going to tell you a little story that will help you to realize who God is, who you are, and the fact that when you pray, yes, He hears you, and it moves His heart to give you, keyword, good gifts. We have a good Father who only knows how to give good gifts. And who's just sitting there waiting for us to ask for some. So we pick up our study today, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, now Jesus was, and here it is, praying in a certain place. And I want to pause and say Luke is bigger on the prayer life of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. 
Nobody talks about it as much as he does. This is chapter 11. This is the fifth time now where he has talked about Jesus praying somewhere. Jesus was praying, we hear, in a certain place. And when he had finished praying, one of his disciples, who's now at this point has been traveling around for three years with Jesus, day and night, seven days a week, watching and engaging intimately in the life of Christ. One of his disciples said to Jesus, Lord, man, you've got to teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray, he says, even as John the Baptist once taught his disciples how to pray. It is right for a master to teach his disciples how to pray. One of the things I learned this week, which I didn't know previously, is that for all the things that the disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them to do, and I want you to think about that. Think about all that they watched. Think about all that they heard. Think about all that they observed. Think about how Christ excelled absolutely everything and everyone, including all of them, and so many different things they could have come to him and said, hey, can you teach us how to do that? Because that's that's pretty awesome. That's pretty valuable. That's pretty meaningful. That's pretty moving. That's powerful, Lord. We'd love to be able to... They only ask him in all the gospel narratives to teach them how to do one thing. This is it. Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, that's telling. That says something about what they observed in the life of Jesus. They saw that this was at the center of his life, at the center of his ministry. And so the disciple comes to him and says, All right, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Sounds like a prayer that Jesus will honor. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. And so Jesus said this to them in response, and don't miss the next word, it's kind of like really important. He says, when you pray. And I want to pause there and say, you know what? He doesn't say if you pray. He just, he doesn't. He says, when you pray. And here's what he's not referring to. He's not talking about those seasons and times in life when a crisis strikes and whether you believe in God or not, or whether you believe in prayer or not, you just figure, well, what the heck? You know, I might as as well try. I'm trying everything else. Last resort. Maybe this will make a difference. Please help me. Please bail me out. Please whatever. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about prayer as a first resort. He's talking about prayer as a way of life. The Apostle Paul says that he prayed without ceasing. That's how far he advanced. It's amazing. Constant, consistent, regular, intimate relationship and communication with the Lord God. That's what he's talking about. And so then he says, okay, here's the deal. When you pray, little pause, when is that? When do you do that? When is it for you that you pray? Because whenever it is, if you're going, hey, you know, I got about 30 seconds in me, so Jesus is now going to cure that for us. He says, when you pray, whenever that is, say this. And then what he gives to us is not a prayer that we're supposed to memorize and then recite verbatim together every time we get together for worship. And I want to pause and say, I am not criticizing that. I grew up doing that every single week. We do it occasionally here, not nearly as much as some would like and not nearly as little as others. It's a wonderful thing to do. And here's why I think it has value. It has value because it drills down into your mind and into your heart this model prayer that he is now about to give to us, but I also think it gives you a misimpression unless you really understand what Jesus is doing. It gives you the impression that that's the way you're supposed to pray the prayer, and it's not. It's not. 
What he's giving to us is a prioritized list of topics that need to be respected in terms of order. It begins here, and then it goes here, and then it goes here. It's like hooks that you hang your thoughts, that you hang your words upon. Jesus has organized our conversation with the Lord. And that's what he gives to us. And so Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, pray this, and then he gives us the first topical hook, which incidentally is who God is in relation to you. He says, start with this, pray, Father, to which Matthew, in his expanded version of this exact same prayer, adds in heaven. And whenever God is pictured in heaven, where do you find him? Every single time he is pictured on heaven's throne. What's the message? Who is this God? Guys, he's the great king and emperor of all the universe whose power and dominion extends over absolutely everything and over absolutely everyone and who thought so much of you that he gave the life of his son that he might purchase you to be his son or his daughter. He's your father. Oh, yeah, and he's the great king and emperor of the universe. And so what Jesus is saying here, practically speaking, is when you come to God in prayer, agenda item number one, sit down for a minute and consider who this God is that you come before the great king and emperor of all the universe, who also happens to be your heavenly father. And what does that make you? Because you ought to consider that too, his precious, beloved son or daughter, his precious, beloved son or daughter by grace through faith in Christ. He's saying, item agenda number one, okay, stop and let that have the impact on your heart that it ought to have. Play out the implications of that in your mind and then allow as the Spirit interacts with you that to pour forth in speech, in praise, in worship, in cares, in concerns, in all of the above. Let it pour forth in conversation with your God. And then when you're done with that, we'll then move on to topical hook number two, which is hallowed, Jesus says, or really holy, like nobody uses the word hallow today. Holy be your name. And the name of God stands for the person of God himself. And so what Jesus is saying here is that this great king and emperor of all the universe whose power and dominion extends over absolutely everything and everyone and who, by grace through faith in Jesus, also happens to be your heavenly father, It's kind of awesome. It's pretty amazing. Okay, that he is holy, that he is different. He is not like any other king. He is not like any other emperor. And forgive me, but as good of dads as we have in this room and outside of this room, he's not like any of us either. He is so much better. He is holy. He is other than. He is different. I remember when I was studying for my ordination exam, and maybe this says something about my personality, I literally memorized like the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is massive overkill, guys. I mean, it was just like ridiculous that I did that. But one of the questions and answers that I still recall, which is also somewhat miraculous at this point, is the question, what is God? Not who is God. We just answered that. Great king, emperor, your father. That's who, but what? And I want to give you the answer because what I want you to see is that this description does not fit anyone but him. He's different. He's other than. So what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, 
and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I'm going to add one with all due respect to the Westminster divines. I'm going to add love because the Apostle John comes and says specifically that God is love. What is Jesus saying? He's like, hey, when you move to this hook, sit down and think about that. Let that into your heart. Let that have its effect. Let that inspire thoughts and ideas. Let the Holy Spirit take that conversation and let it pour forth an utterance out of your mouth in praise and in worship and cares and concerns and requests and all kinds of speech to the Lord your God. 30 seconds of material? Wow. He's given us a lot of help. And then when you're done with that, move on to, well, hook number three, which is the kingdom. He says, your kingdom come. That's next, which Matthew also expands by adding that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is God's will done in heaven? The simple answer, it's done perfectly. Okay, so then play that out. How should it be done, therefore, in my life and in yours, in my family and in yours, in my workplace and in yours, in this church, in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world? Because there's a lot to pray for in all of that. A lot to pray for in all of that. To the great king and emperor of the universe whose dominion and power, well extends over absolutely everything and everyone, and who also happens to be your father, which brings us to the second half of this model prayer, which is the part where we get to pray for ourselves, but here's what we're going to learn. Even here, I'm still not just supposed to pray for me, and you're still not just supposed to pray for you. Watch the pronouns. Here's the ones you won't hear. I, me, or my. They're not in there. The Lord says this in teaching us how to pray now. He's teaching us to pray for each other. He says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Do you hear that? And then he attaches this. It's astounding. He says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now stop there for a minute. I read that and thought, you know, that's a little bit presumptuous of Jesus perhaps, don't you think? But it's not, is it? Jesus is never presumptuous. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, how could you not do that? Whoa. How could you not do that? He's coming to us and saying, you know what? The nature of the gospel itself demands this of you. This is the byproduct of truly understanding how much debt of yours that God has forgiven for you. And you're like, yeah, but you know, here's the deal. I didn't do to God what so-and-so did to me. I understand that. But the gravity of an offense is measured against the gravity of the being that it's committed against. So consider God because he is the most infinitely valuable. Indeed, he is the only infinitely valuable being in all the universe, which means that every one of your offenses is an offense committed against an infinitely valuable being. How big is that? It's infinitely big. Only an infinite being could pay that debt. That's why Jesus Christ had to be God and man. A man who died for men with an infinitely valuable life. Look, the Father comes and says, look, here's the deal. All right, I have forgiven you this much, okay? And just take it infinitely in both directions. 
Now, here's what you're called to do in response. If I can pay this debt for you, yeah, you can release this debt for this person over here. And you're like, but Tom, it doesn't feel like this. And it doesn't, does it? But you have to compare it to what you've been forgiven. You have to look at it through that lens. So Jesus says, all right, give us each day our daily bread, forgive our sins, and here's legit, okay? I mean this, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and then he says, and lead us not into temptation. So he gives us three things, and in giving us these three things, he's giving us also at the same time a list of things that, that we actually need, as opposed to the long list of things that we think we need, but that we actually just kind of want. He's recalibrating our priorities. He's saying, let me tell you what you need. It's simple. Three things. One, daily bread. You're like, I don't need daily bread. I've got a refrigerator. I've got a pantry. I have money. I can go to Publix. I've got food coming out of my ears. I mean, if I've been, I've been to Haiti, so those people need daily bread. Maybe I can this, just delete this one off my list. No, it's not just physical bread. It's spiritual bread. Jesus is the bread of life, self-described. And the reality is that every one of us has a daily need of him, a daily need of his forgiveness, a daily need of his wisdom, a daily need of his guidance, of his mercy, of his grace, of his power, of his presence, of his peace. I mean, the list is endless. What we not just want, but what we need. So Jesus says, daily bread, you need that. Secondly, you need to be forgiven and you need to forgive. Ah, God's forgiven you this much. He's just asking you to forgive that person over here this much. I know it doesn't feel like this much, but we've covered it. See, when you look at it through the lens of this, it gets really, really small. And do you know who benefits most from your extending that forgiveness? You do. It begins to heal the very thing that you're releasing the debt over. Lastly, number three, he says you need protection. You need to be protected from temptation. And in Matthew, he says, oh, and also from the tempter himself, because the reality is that we are all of us weaker than we realize. And so that's what to pray about. But you say, well, but that wasn't the only issue. The other part of the problem was, I, I just, I need a little kind of a want to, you know. I'm not all that excited about it. Truthfully, I'm not terribly motivated. And so he continues. Luke tells us in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, to this same group to whom he's just given this model prayer, Which one of you, now follow the narrative here, Which one of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has just arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And if you're going to understand what's happening here, you need to understand how offensive that would have been in that culture. That's something people typically would not have done. You would never just go over to somebody's house, bang on their door, wake them up in the middle of the night, and ask for something that, frankly, you should have had. Enough food for one person for one meal. And even if you didn't, you shouldn't have done it. It's a little bit scandalous, believe it or not. And it exposes the shameful condition of the person who does it, too. Good grief. You don't even have enough food for one person for one meal? Like, what were you planning to do for breakfast? Such is your poverty that it drove you to this? Yeah, but not just the poverty. I really like the guy who goes and wakes him up in the middle of the night. I'll tell you why. Because apparently he is so moved by the hunger of the traveler 
that he's willing to violate the customs and conventions of his day. He is willing to expose his own shameful state by going over, pounding on the door of this guy, and waking him up. I wonder this morning what you're willing to do to meet the needs of other people, what you're willing to sacrifice. Because I'll tell you, I don't think that we can credibly claim to love God on the one hand and ignore the needs of other people. On the other hand, it's kind of like forgiveness. Hey, you know what? I've forgiven you this much, and I require you to forgive this much. Now he comes to us and says, hey, you know what? In Jesus, I've given you this much. Just take it infinitely in either direction. Infinitely, I have given to you. And now I require you. You see that person? Do you see that family? Do you see that organization? Do you see that? Whatever the Spirit lays on your heart. You see that? I require you to meet that need. You're like, hey, man, it's not a little need. Like, what if I don't have the resources? What do I do? Well, that's part of the beauty of following Jesus. Through faith in Christ, you come to a Father who, A, never sleeps, B, never runs out of resources, who implores you to come to Him, invites you again and again to come to Him. And you get the privilege of offering your prayer to Him. So Jesus says, which of you has a friend will go to Him at midnight and say to Him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has just arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before Him. And He, meaning this guy who now has just been rudely awakened, will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. My children are now with me in bed. So this makes Him a father, doesn't it? Interesting. My children are now with me in bed, and I cannot give up or get up to give you anything. And yet I tell you, says Jesus, though he, this sleeper, will not get up and give him anything, at least, well, initially, because he is a friend, yet because of his, this rudely, or this rude man's impudence, or literally it means shamelessness, he, this rudely awakened man, will eventually rise. And give him whatever he needs, the point of this parable then being what? That if this rudely awakened man will get up in the middle of the night to give to his friend whatever it is that his friend needs, how much more then will your heavenly father, the great king and emperor of all of the universe, whose power and dominion extends over absolutely everything and everyone, and who has purchased you as his own at the expense of the life of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who never sleeps, who has endless resources, who implores you to come to him, how much more so will he get up, if you will, and give to you what you need, what you need? Need being an important word. Because you're not just some friend to him. You're not just some person who has to walk over to his house in the middle of the night and beat on the door and hope that he'll wake up, you know, and then have this sort of shouting conversation through a closed, bolted, locked door. Who are you? You're one of the children in the house. That's the idea. He's your father, and all you have to do is roll over and say, hey, Dad, you know what? I'm hungry. Or this friend of mine is hungry. Is there something we can do about this? There's a need here. Can you... Meet it for me. And that's kind of motivating. But just in case we missed it, Jesus adds this, beginning in verse 9, and listen to the language. I mean, it's strong. He says, And I tell you, ask, and it what? 
will be given to you. Seems pretty clear. (laughs) Seek and you, what? Will, fine, knock and it, well, here it is again, will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, here it is again, it will be opened. You just want to put that dude on a three-by-five card, don't you? That's a great passage. But wait, now he's going to qualify it. And he needs to qualify it. Because otherwise, it's my wisdom and yours that ends up running the universe. And we're not wise enough for that. That would not be a good thing. And so Jesus now creates another comparison. And it's a comparison between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. And we don't compare well. So he says this, he says, what father among you? So what earthly father, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Okay, nobody, right? So go on again. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Again, none of us. And now he delivers the punchline. He says, if you then who are what? Because it is a little off-putting, at least initially, or I put it, let me put it differently, at least until we make the comparison. I've asked you to forgive this much. I've forgiven you this much. You forgive this much. I've given you this much. You give this much. Okay, here's the heavenly father. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. And Tom, there's you. So let's call it rightly. If you then, who are evil, know how to give what kind of gifts? It's the key. Good gifts to your children How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit who is the very best of gifts? He is the superlative gift to those who ask Him. It's awesome. It's pretty amazing. So maybe you're thinking, you know, we've covered a lot of ground today. Could you just sum up that last part because it got a little tricky for me. What exactly is Jesus saying and, and maybe not saying? Well, let's start with the not saying. He's not saying, ask whatever you want and God will give it to you. Seek whatever you want to find, and God will make sure it happens for you. Knock on whatever door you want to have opened for you, and the Lord will kick it down for you. And here's why he's not saying that, because God is a good father, and good fathers only know how to give good gifts. But here's the problem. The children don't always see it that way, do they? And parents know that. You know, it's like when your son is four and he asks you for a machete, you know, and you're like... All right, here's what I'm going to give you instead, G.I. Joe, Kung Fu Grip, with a machete, plastic this long. We're going to go that route. Now, is that a fish or is that a serpent? Hey, Dad, now I'm nine. I want a shotgun. That's wonderful, son. Here's what we'll do. We'll get a slingshot and we'll do that together at Target's in a backyard. Is that an egg or is that a scorpion? Dad, I'm 16. I want a motorcycle that goes 235 miles an hour, even though I've never, I've never ridden a motorcycle in my life, and I'm not planning to wear a helmet. And I, you know what? You're going to get a used Honda Accord, and here's the deal. <laughs> you might think that's bland, but man, that's a good gift. It's a good gift. And so it is with us and God. 
We come to God and in our limited wisdom and from our limited perspective and sinfulness and selfishness, we ask him for what we are absolutely confident is a fish. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. We're absolutely confident it's a fish. I know that this is good, and I'm so ticked that you will not give this to me. What do you mean I can't have a machete? I'm four. What's your problem? I just learned to use a butter knife. Surely I can wield this. Yet we do that. And how do we know that it's a good gift? Like, how are we so absolutely certain that this is good and you're so bad because you won't do this for me? Why? Why? Is it because we know absolutely everything? Who here knows absolutely everything perfectly? Anybody? The lights are bright, so if your hand is up, I can't see you. The only way to know anything, anything for certain, is first to know absolutely everything. Because here's the deal. Unless you know absolutely everything comprehensively, from eternity past to eternity future... There's always that chance that there's some bit of information out there that would completely change your perspective, isn't there? You can think you know, but you don't know unless the one who truly does know tells you. We are so, forgive me, lacking in humility. That's a nicer way than saying arrogant, I guess. When we approach God and get so angry with him about the way that he runs the universe and the way that he runs our life, because, you know, I mean, we know absolutely everything. No, we don't, do we? I just know it, Lord. So here's what our Father does. Because He is a good Father, when we think we're requesting a fish, but we're really requesting a serpent, He gives us a fish. And it may look like a Honda Accord or a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip or whatever, a slingshot that you can only use with Him. And perhaps we're disappointed But is it a good gift or not? It is. And what Jesus is saying is that's what he does every time. Which is motivating, really, if you trust in his wisdom and in his goodness. So Jesus is coming and saying, my goodness, you know, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, all right, well, then just try to imagine for a second the kind of good gifts that your heavenly Father from His wealth is just sitting there waiting to give to you. I mean, look, if He will not deny you the Holy Spirit, the superlative gift, what exactly will He then withhold from you? What will He just not... You know, I've given you the Spirit, but now not a machete. Just Because that should motivate us. All right, so two assignments. Assignment number one, sit down this afternoon, pull out your calendar. This is going to be awesome. You're going to love this. And look at it for this week. All your appointments, and don't get stressed out, okay? Just, I know you're not supposed to work today, but just look at it, all your appointments, all the places you have to be, all the things that you have put time into your calendar for because they are worthy of your time. And then I want you to consider who God is, the great king and emperor of all the universe whose power and dominion extends over absolutely everything and everyone and who has given his one and only son 
to bring you into his family as his precious and beloved son or daughter. And I want you to calendar some time to spend with him in personal worship and in prayer. And then, number two, I want you to take this model prayer, either from Luke here, Luke 11, or from Matthew 6. It's a little fuller version. I would recommend that one, actually. And I want you to put it into practice. Topical hook by topical hook by topical hook by topical hook, and just let the Lord and His Spirit take you wherever He will with that. Pray and organize your conversation as Jesus has given you this model prayer to do so with. And now here's my last couple of suggestions. Do it, first of all, on your knees. I realize, those of us who are over 40, that that can be a painful experience. If you have major knee problems, you're exempt. But otherwise, get a towel, man. Throw a pillow on the ground and get physically on your knees. Lean into a chair. Do it. And then pray out loud. Why do I say that? I pray out loud almost every prayer I pray. (laughs) Unless I'm standing there with you and I'm praying for you as we're standing or having another conversation, which happens. But really, why? Because if I don't, I'm like 10 million miles down the road on a whole other thought process before I know it, and it's like, good grief, I thought I was having a conversation with the Lord. If I pray out loud, I am focused in a way that I'm not focused anywhere. There is something to the physicality of this and the focus that it brings and the humility, incidentally, also of kneeling, frankly, and there's something to saying it out loud. And I talked a little bit about this in the first service, and I said, you know, I know that might feel awkward for you, and then I kind of said, just get over it, you know? And, um, and I'm standing by that, you know? Just get over it. Just get over it. I mean that in love. Just get over it. Get over your awkwardness. Really, it's silly. It's the great king of the universe for crying out loud who gave his son for you, and you can't kneel and pray out loud because it feels weird. Get used to it. And write. Begin to create a list of people, of things, as God leads you through this model prayer that you can pray to the next time you come back. And the next time you come back and write in how the Lord answers those prayers over time and scratch things out. That's awesome. Keep a journal, a record. It's a record of His faithfulness. It will sing to your soul. Guys, following Jesus means becoming a person of prayer. And He has shown us how to do it. And He's shown us why. All that's left is for us to now do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, for your patience. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of entering into your presence. We pray forgiveness for our neglect of it. And we are so thankful that you wash away our sin and our guilt all of that stuff in Jesus. He died for that too. Let us start afresh with you, Lord. Bring us to our knees physically and in our hearts and minds. Let us reckon and do business with the one who is the great king and emperor of the universe and who is our father and who himself alone made it so he gets all the credit. Lord, let us give you the credit. 
Let us find you on our knees. Let us speak to you out of our hearts and souls. Lord, patiently work through with us all of the things that need to be worked through. Relate to us. Know us and, Lord, let us know you. Teach us how to become people of prayer that we might more effectively live for and serve and follow Jesus, the greatest prayer ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.